Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter number 10, starting a brand new chapter today, the last chapter of the book of Ezra. And I think what we will find, you know, I have always been amazed at God's timing. When we begin studies, when we begin series, when we begin teaching through a portion of Scripture in an expository manner, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, when we begin that process, I do not schedule out. So in other words, I don't look ahead and say, okay, this is happening this weekend, so I'm going to make sure that we get to this point by then so that I can teach this lesson on that day. That's not how it works. Um, I just keep rolling through as the Lord leads and directs and we get through as much as we can and then we stop and we go and we stop and we go and we stop. And um, I just have a feeling that this is going to be a very timely lesson this week and what we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, begin on uh, in the next two or three weeks will also be very timely given all that we're going through as a nation. And so I hope and pray that it'll help you as it's helped me. I've thought long and hard about chapter number 10 and how we were going to characterize this chapter. As you know, we've taken the time to break apart each section and give it a name. Uh, here's what we've worked through so far. The Great Revival began in, in chapter number 1. The Great Congregation was formed in chapter number 2. They began a great work at the end of chapter number 2. Uh, and after that work, after the foundations were laid, you remember that great cry that went out by the elders because they could remember what the old temple was like. They could remember the, the glory of the old Jerusalem. And as they saw their Jerusalem, the, the uh, decrepit Jerusalem, broken down, uh, having been laid under siege and then crumbled by their adversaries, it caused them to cry as they considered what it used to be like. But for those that didn't remember that, for those that were too young to remember those days, for those that weren't even alive in those days, there was a great shout. They were excited because they could see what God was doing. Then there was a great enemy that rose up against them, tried to stop the work that God was doing, and they used manipulation and subversion to accomplish that. They went to the king and they began to tell the king that uh, Israel was uh, a country that was known for usurping authority over their captors. They would, be in, they would be in captivity for a while, and after a period of time, they would rise up against their captors, and they would regain their independence. And they went and warned the king of this. Then there were the great prophets that came along to correct the people after they had stopped the work. You remember that? They decided to do what the king had said, to stop working, to stop building the temple, and they put it on hiatus. For a while, and so God sent two prophets specifically to basically say, "What do you think you're doing? You're supposed to be doing what God tells you to do, not just what the King tells you to do." Now we know in old in, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that as much as is possible, we're to live peaceably with all men. That we're to do what the government tells us to do, as long as it lines up with God's will. The moment that we have to disobey God to follow government is where we draw the line. And that's exactly what the children of Israel failed to do. And so God sent the prophets to correct that. Then there was the great test. Just as they had gone through that the first time with those enemies, so God put them through it a second time. Only this time they didn't fail the test. 
Remember those lawyers? They went to the king and they basically they were trying to pull the same stunt. This time Israel was a bit stronger though. And they responded with, we're going to do what God wants us to do, regardless of what you say, with or without your permission, we're going to do what God shows us to do. Uh, and that was their great response. Then God raises up a great teacher, a great influencer in the man of Ezra. Ezra is sent by God to Jerusalem to be their pastor, if you will. And he steps into that role and he begins to lead the children of Israel by example. And God uses him mightily in that. Uh, through Ezra's leadership, a great team is formed. Now they've got the Levites. Now they've got the Nethanims. Now they've got everybody that they need to move forward with not just building the temple, but filling the temple. You know, it's one thing to build a beautiful structure. It's another thing to fill it properly with service to the Lord and worship to the Lord and all that God wanted. And that's what they began to do uh, on their great journey that they took they, they carried all those uh, parts of the temple, all those men that were needed for the service of the temple. They went on a great journey to Jerusalem, and God brought them there. Upon their arrival, though, Ezra found out something devastating. A great falling away had occurred. In the time period from when they first entered into Jerusalem to lay the foundations, they fell away the first time in obedience to government over God. And then the second time, they began building again, and while they're building, they begin intermingling with the ones in the land that God did not want them to intermingle with. They begin to take unto them wives. They begin to take unto them husbands of the land. And God had expressly stated that that was not permitted. They could not do that, and they did it anyway. And we took the last several weeks to look at that great falling away. We looked at the sin. We looked at the sorrow, the scolding, and the supplication. And what we concluded with last Sunday morning was this thought, that it's never too late to rise up after having fallen away. And we use that little word rise to encourage each of us to repent of sin, to invite sorrow, to surrender to scolding, and to entreat the Lord in supplication. To rise up. Just as it is true that it's never too late to rise up after having fallen away, it's also true that we are never too strong to fall. I want to think about that for a moment in way of introduction this morning. We are never too strong to fall. You know, interestingly enough, my weakest times of life are the times that I don't think I'm weak. Spiritually, they're the times whenever I feel like I have all the strength I'll ever need to stand strong against the enemy. It's in those times that I find myself most vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. After a great victory has been won, after it appears as though souls have been saved, after it seems like that we took on something very difficult and achieved it, it's in those moments that we find ourselves most vulnerable. And that's exactly what's happened with Israel. They've taken on their enemies and they've won. They've gone on their journey and they made it. Now they're dealing with this falling away and they're trying to rise up. And I believe what God's doing here is He's keeping His people humble. Now, not by allowing them to sin. That's not the idea. The idea, however, we'll find in just a moment is that whenever we fail, whenever we fall short of God's plan, it does good for us to never think too highly of ourselves. 
In fact, that's warned to us in the New Testament to never think too highly of ourselves, to take heed lest we fall. And that's what we've got to be cautious and thoughtful of. Now, with all of that said, let's look at chapter number 10, verse 1. And we'll read a few verses here to begin with. And I want us to consider this thought in chapter number 10, the great repentance. So there's this great falling away. And Ezra, by example, shows Israel how they should respond after having fallen away. Now, they've not responded yet. Everything that we looked at in chapter number 9 was Ezra's response. It wasn't the people's response. Ezra is the one who confronts the sin. He's the one who experiences the sorrow. He's the one that does the scolding. He's the one that offers up the supplication. The people haven't done anything yet. Ezra has led by example. He has shown the children of Israel how they should respond when they've fallen away, but they've not done anything yet. They've not repented yet until chapter number 10, verse number 1. Look what the Bible says. Now when Ezra had prayed... And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation. Now, I want you to listen to the demographics. I don't know about you, but I'm getting sick of demographics. Are you getting sick of that? Any of you that are keeping up with all this that's going on, I'm getting sick of the demographics. All this, you know, age groups and... Uh, you know, where people are from and all this and trying to appeal to this specific group. I just, get, I just get sick of it. I do. I get sick of appealing to specific demographics and not just being real. That really drives me crazy. And so what we see here is we see God moving in every demographic. We know something special is about to happen because of this. Look at it here. It says, There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. What I have found is that God, when he begins to move like this in every demographic, something special is about to take place. Now look at verse number 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Now, here's what they're going to covenant. And this this is heartbreaking. You know, this is of the things that I've studied in chapter number 10, verse number 3 and verse number 44. I actually had to get up from studying for a minute because it it took me back to consider how heart-shattering this would be to have to make this covenant. But look at what they covenant with God. To put away all the wives and, now listen to this, and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Not only are they to put away these women that they have loved for who knows how long. These husbands who have taken on these wives that God commanded them not to take on. You know, we look at it as, if we're not careful, we just kind of read through it and we don't let it sink in. But imagine being married for 12 years to someone 
And then God comes along and says, you weren't supposed to do that. And, and God has reasons why Israel can't do this. Remember, it all boils down to one thing. The Messiah is going to come through this one avenue. All the commandments, all the stipulations, all the guidelines, all the dietary laws, it all boils down to one thing. Reserving a people through which God can birth His only Son into the world. And if they're doing this, that becomes impossible. And so along the way, God has harsh criticisms for Israel to keep them on track to be that selected seed through which He would send His only begotten Son and for that matter, through which He would deliver His Word to the world. This is critical. This is important. But they don't only have to put the wives away, which means to let them go. That's the idea. But also their children that they've born with those wives. Now some would look at this and think, boy, that is not the God we serve. But you see, there's a misconception in our world today. Now I've got to be very careful how I say this. But whenever we begin to adopt the theory that God is okay with us loving whoever we want to love, we actually step outside of the boundaries of God's Word. Now, I know that's confrontational to say. I know it's not politically correct. But God has a will. God has a plan. God's plan is perfect. God's Word is perfect. And everything else is skewed. So whenever we begin to try to justify a new form of thinking, a new normal, if you will, by stepping outside of the boundaries of God's Word and embracing the theories of our society, we are treading on thin ice. And that's what I've seen a lot of times in our world is even Christians can get to a place where they'll say, well, people should be able to love whoever they want to love. Well... God's Word doesn't say that in terms of marry, marrying and being given in marriage. The Bible says one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's what the Bible says. It says in the Old Testament, says in the New Testament, God has not changed His mind. And so we've got to be very careful and very thoughtful about what we begin to permit in our Christian lives because God's Word is sure. Now, with that said, one of the stipulations that God has both in the Old Testament and New Testament is that those who follow God should not marry those who don't. The Bible uses the phrase unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Sound familiar? That's a New Testament principle. And that's exactly what's happened here is that they have been yoked together with those that are not following God. Now, what's the, what's the consequences or what's the... Uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. What's the danger in being yoked together with an unbeliever? Well, you know as well as I do that it's a whole lot easier for a bad influence to get a hold of a good influence than it is for a good influence to get a hold of a bad influence. If a person who is a Christian begins hanging out with a person who's not a Christian and you allow that to go on for a certain period of time, it's much more likely that the person who's not a Christian is going to have more of a negative impact on the person who is than the other way around. Why? Because sin is powerful. 
Because sin is pleasurable. Because sin is the easier thing to do. And so the natural tendency, one of the things as I was a youth leader for a long, long time, one of the things that uh, always rubbed me the wrong way is whenever a guy would come into my office and he'd say, I really think if I hang out with her enough that I'll convince her that she needs... I said, whoa, stop right there. I said, you are, you've got this upside down and backwards. Now, every once in a great while, perhaps there's a chance that that influence can happen and praise God when it does. My grandmother and my granddad are a perfect example of that. My grandmother, against her own father's wishes, began hanging out with my granddad whenever he was lost and undone. And over the course of about a year's time, she convinced him to be, uh, to be saved. She led him to the Lord. And that is a, a perfect example how occasionally that can work out, but most of the time it doesn't. I've watched young man after young man and young woman after young woman fall away from God based upon their affiliations. And that's why God comes into this scene and says, this has got to stop. And so, with all of that said... I want us to take some time. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do first. We'll consider what it means to repent. We're calling this the great repentance. This chapter, we're going to refer to it as the great repentance. What does it mean then to repent? Well, repentance is the exact opposite of falling away. When you think about the falling away, when you think about falling away from the Lord, to repent is to do the exact opposite of that. It's to stop falling away and to go back to God. That's what it means to repent. And let me say this, because I have caught myself praying this, and maybe you have too. Have you ever prayed, Lord, would you help me to repent? Have you ever said those words? I have. I've, I've said that hundreds of times in my Christian life. God, would you help me to repent? But the reality is repentance is action on our part. God does everything He's supposed to do to convince us to repent. But the actual act of repentance is up to me. You see, one of the things that we, we tend to do sometimes, we, we try to remove as much responsibility from ourselves as we possibly can. And that's a perfect example of that. We'll say, God, would you help me to repent? And if we don't repent, God, why aren't you helping me repent? God, why am I not getting better? Why am I not getting more victory? God, why am I falling so much to sin? And all the while, God's Word's been out there. The preaching's been out there. The conviction. The circumstantial things that God's beginning to work out in your life to correct. The, the chastisement of God. All of those things are going on. And, and really, I can imagine God responding with, Why aren't you repenting? Why aren't you getting more victory over sin? I've given you everything. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Word of God's been given to you. Everything that you need to repent has been put out there. Now it's up to you to step up and actually do the work of repentance because it is work. I guess that's what I'm getting at and that's what we're going to spend this whole chapter looking at is that repentance is work. It's not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens in one prayer. Repentance is a change of of course. It's taking an exit from normal life and turning around and going back to where you lost your closeness with God. It takes work. It takes time. It's not easy. We're not talking about a get out of jail free card, which is what a lot of people want to use repentance as. It's just something that I can get out of the trouble that I'm in. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about returning to a close and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is all about. To repent is to turn from sin and to turn back to God. Now, what does it consist of? What are the steps of repentance? Because again, these are the th- this is the stuff that the Christian life is made of. You know, we talk about a lot of different things. You know, we talk about uh, how to treat your wife, how to treat your husband, how to raise your children, how to be a good church member, how to change, you know, make a difference in the community. We talk about a lot of the stuff that Christianity is made of, but if you want to know, at least in my opinion, what the number one thing is that makes up the Christian life, I think it's repentance. Because sin is real. And we're pretty regularly involved in it. And if there's not repentance, we will completely and utterly fall away. That's why you see people doing this by the countless hundreds of thousands. People just, they just keep falling away. It's a whole lot easier than to repent and then to repent and then to repent. So what are the steps, the biblical steps of repentance? That's what I want to look at here. And we're going to start in chapter number one. I'm sorry, verse number one. We're going to start in verse number one. I wonder how many times I do that. I say something, I think it was the right thing to say, and y'all are just so gracious. I caught one last week. Uh, I was listening uh, I was listening back to a sermon uh, from a few weeks ago, and I was trying to work through it to tie it into another sermon, and I, I was listening to it, and I said something. I thought, those gracious people, they just look right past all of my silliness, and uh, I appreciate that very much, but... Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Now I know we've talked about the sorrow. We've talked about feeling sin. I get that. But I want to start off by saying, the first step that a child of God has to take in order to properly and biblically repent, is they have to experience contrition. They have to experience contrition. A broken heart. Sorrow. Weeping. Over sin. What happens, at least in my life, I don't know if it's the same with you, but it is with me. What happens in my life is the more I sin, the more cold I become to sin. Does that make sense? So in other words, when I get when I when I fall into sin and then I fall into the same sin again and then again and then again and then again and then again, by the tenth time, the conviction doesn't feel nearly like it did the first time. Now are you with me? And the problem is, is the longer we go. Growing cold to sin, the more likely we will be to continue falling into sin. So how do I break that coldness? How do I, how do I break apart that stony heart, which we're going to talk about in the worship service again today. But how does that take place? Well, I think, first of all, it all happens up here in the mind. Changing one's perspective of sin. And the way that occurs is, first of all, by understanding the curse of sin. When we understand how heinous sin actually is, 
how that curse has permeated every person who's ever walked the face of the earth except one. When we understand what sin does to our children and to our grandchildren, take us out of the equation. You want to get angry about sin? You want sin to affect you again? Think about 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road, whenever your child is battling the same generational curses that you're battling now. That'll change your perspective of sin. Let it sink deep, the curse that is sin. And whenever we begin to understand that curse, I think it can change and it can melt away that cold heart. The second thing that we've got to understand, not only the curse of sin, but we've got to understand the cost of sin. The cost of sin. What did sin cost God? It cost Him His only begotten Son on the cross of Calvary. What does sin cost us apart from redemption? It cost us an eternity in a Christless hell. You see, we laugh sin off, don't we? Not publicly, not in front of anyone, but privately. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, I had a young man tell me one time, he was also a teenager, a year younger than I was, and we were talking about something and he was trying to convince me to do something I should not do. And I told him, I said, we can't do that. He said, oh, come on. I said, no, we, we can't do that. No, we cannot do that. We were in a youth group, and I knew if the youth leader found out and, and, and became aware of it, it'd be bad. But not only that, but if God knew, which he would, that, that it was just entirely unacceptable. It was not even a thought in the mind. And he said these words. He said, you've got to lighten up a little bit. You know what he was saying? He wasn't saying it out loud. But what he was really saying was, you've got to take sin less seriously. Now, we would never say that. But we live like that, don't we? You've got to take it a little less serious. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it is when you consider what sin costs. And then thirdly, understand the curse of sin, understand the cost of sin, and understand the lasting consequences of sin. And we're going to dwell on this later on in our study. But verse number 3 and verse number what was it, 44, there are deep and abiding lifelong consequences to the sin that Israel has committed here. They will, for the rest of their lives, have this scar on them. A consequence of sin. You know, God is a forgiving God. He's a loving God. And He's a merciful and gracious God. And when the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I believe that with all of my heart. But I do not believe that in every case God removes the scar. He removes the sin. But I believe that there are consequences. Now, not in every case. But whenever I talked to someone, there was someone not that long ago that I was counseling with. And I was trying to explain to them because what they had done was not legal. There were some legal implications to what they had done. And I explained to them and I told them, I said, you've got to understand these are consequences you're going to have to deal with. And they said, well, but God, I said, hold on. God will remove the sin. He'll forgive the sin. He'll remove it as far as the east is from the west. And in his heart and mind, he will robe you in the righteousness of Christ. But that does not mean that the consequences of your sin will be removed. 
You've got to face it. You've got to deal with it. When we begin to understand the curse and the cost and the consequences of sin, we will begin to look at sin differently. It will pain us to commit, to commit sin. It will break our hearts to succumb to sin. It will anger us when sin brings about temptation. Instead of looking at it as an opportunity, we will look at sin and temptation with disdain when we understand sin like God wants us to. That's what contrition, that's what a broken and contrite heart is all about. It's all about not growing cold to sin. Preacher, that is not fun to hear. I get it. I'm with you. I agree with you. It's not fun to study. I'm being honest with you. It may not be fun to hear, but it's really not fun to sit there and study it. But boy, I'll tell you, it is an essential part of repentance. It is the first step of repentance is allowing that contrition a place in your heart. Number two, look at verse number two. It says, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Lord just laid a thought on my heart that I don't have written into my notes. I believe that the reason revival does not take place is because people will not allow these steps to be taken in their lives. We always wonder why, why no revival? Because there's no repentance. Why no repentance? Because it's work. And it's not pleasant work. It's hard work. And contrition being the first step. See, we think of revival as the exact opposite. You go to some other denominations of churches and they think revival is screaming and hollering and running up and down aisles. I think that revival starts, it begins with broken hearts knelt face down at an altar. That's where revival begins. The second step of repentance beyond contrition is confession. Confession. Now, we can glean from verse number 2 some characteristics of confession that I hope will help you. The first phrase I want you to notice, it says, we have. Look at verse number 2. It says, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed. We have. The first attitude that needs to be a part of our lives when we confess is sincerity. We need to be sincere. Own up. Be honest, if you will. We have. That's the exact opposite of what most people do when they're confronted with their sin. No, I didn't. But I... You don't under... We have all kinds of immediate responses, but very rarely is our immediate response, we have. I have a lot of respect for the Shechaniah guy. I would never name my kid that. But I tell you, this is a, an amazing man here. Out of all the children of Israel, he's the one that steps up and he says, we have trespassed. He's sincere about it. He owns up to it. The second thing that needs to be a characteristic of our confession is that we need to be sorry. Be sincere and be really sorry. Notice he says, we have trespassed against our God. There's an added weight when you understand who you've trespassed against. 
And I believe that the sorrow of the reality of who they sinned against has overwhelmed the children of Israel. That's why the men, the women, and the children, all of them, they're crying, they're weeping very sore because they understand who they sinned against. A holy and righteous God who's given them chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity to get this right, and they're still getting it wrong. He's been so gracious and so merciful and so kind, and they're still getting it wrong. Cycle after cycle of, of a judge coming or whoever it may have been that God send, God sends a different king or He sends a different judge or whoever it is, and over and over again they go through these cycles of getting it right, and yet here they are, fallen again. And they're sorry because they have sinned against God. We have trespassed against God. Thirdly, be sincere, be sorry. Thirdly, be specific. I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to mention it again today. When you specifically state to God in prayer what you have done against Him, it changes your perspective of what you've done. Notice what He says here. He doesn't just say that we've trespassed against our God in verse number 2. It says He goes on and says, And have taken strange wives of the people of the land, yet now is there hope in Israel concerning this thing. He gets specific. He says, we trespassed against God and here's how we did it. Specificity. And then fourthly, be surrendered in your confession. You know, confession is not a time to try to justify what we've done. That's not what it's about. It's not about saying, God, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. But there's a lot of people that have done that. And I just believe, God, that you love me too much to punish me too hard. Confession is a time to lay our hearts in the hands of God and let Him do whatever He wants to do in response. The sweetest times of punishing my children is when they deeply understand that what they've done is wrong and they understand that whatever punishment I drop down on them is appropriate. I had one time, I mentioned it to you before, but I had one time in particular that I will never forget that Simeon nearly poked Canaan's eyeball out with a pencil. This was about a year and a half ago. He got so angry. I don't even I wasn't there. Emily called me and told me about it. It was is really bad. And I know he'll forgive me for sharing this as an example. But he got so angry that he took a pencil and he went and jabbed it right toward Canaan's eye and he missed by about a quarter of an inch. And by the time I got home, he knew there was this he knew whatever punishment I leveled down on him, he deserved it. And I did. I leveled punishment down on him. But from that point forward, I don't know if... Very rarely, very rarely does Simeon ever get angry now. I'm trying to make sure I'm being honest with you. I think that's pretty honest. keeps it pretty well in check. He does. I mean, I don't know when the last time was I saw him burst out in anger. 
is because he was surrendered in that moment to whatever he had coming. Because I think his anger scared him. He realized how, how scary that actually was. And see, the same thing needs to happen in each of our hearts. When we confess, it's not just a time where words come out of our mouths so that we can get out of it. It's a time that we are sincerely stating to God how sorry we are about our specific sin and surrender to what He chooses to do in response. God, what I've done is wrong. And however you choose to correct us, we're in your hand. Let your will be done. Contrition, confession. We'll move on to the next steps next week of repentance. Um, And what I want you to understand is this is not steps to death. This is steps to life. And life more abundant. This is steps that get us out of death and back into the life that Christ has for us as His children.